Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This episode is going to be a little bit different. This podcast started back in 2020, right in the middle of the fiercest, most dangerous, and most consequential political fights I had ever been in. For many of you listening, those days still appear way too close in our rearview mirror. And while we won that fight that time, it has spawned a thousand others. We're now living through a period of history that will ultimately be defined by a global struggle between authoritarianism and freedom, between autocracy and democracy, right and wrong, good and evil. But it's time we talked about the relational collateral damage this fight has caused along the way. The destruction of friendships, the severing of connections, the atrophy of familial bonds, the aloneness many of us have felt as a result of this conflict. One of the most frequent questions I've been asked is, how do I talk to my uncle or my sister or my cousin? What do I say to my grandparents or that friend who used to be my best friend, but now we don't even want to be around each other? And persuade them or convince them to vote against fill in your blank. We are in a period of great transition. The generations of human beings who are alive right now on this planet are ultimately going to have to agree on the values and virtues we choose to embed in our shared lives, in the way we organize ourselves. And if we're going to do that, we're going to have to talk. We're going to have to listen. So today, before I introduce my guests, I'm going to share some personal background with you. Some of you already know I was raised in a very conservative environment in both the political sense and the religious sense. Evangelical, actually. My parents were pastors. I was homeschooled. And when your world revolves around church, Bible camp, Jesus Jamboree, Dr. James Dobson on the radio, growing up gay is pretty tough. So growing into a career as a Republican political operative, working on some of the highest profile, most competitive races in the country, I learned, as a matter of survival, how to keep my world separate. And after a traumatic event on a big campaign sent those worlds smashing into each other, I came out to my family and began the long and painful process of reconciling who I am with what I believe and what I'm spending my energy on in this world. I've since deconstructed that faith, the politics I inherited, dimensions of my identity, the entire sense-making apparatus that relied on those pillars is gone. I no longer identify as a Christian or a Republican, but that world and many of the people in it will always be my heritage. And please believe me when I say there is good to be found in it. Somewhere toward the end of my deconstructing, I attended a conference here in D.C. with a bunch of LGBT Christians. Yes, that's right. It's a thing. They had gathered to share their stories and talk about how to advocate for LGBT inclusion in non-affirming or even hostile Christian communities. And the keynote speaker was a well-known and widely respected conservative theologian, literally the author of the gold standard textbook on biblical ethics used in seminaries. He was there to give a speech recanting and apologizing for Christianity's moral opposition to homosexuality. And I was overwhelmed by that. At that gathering, I met a stranger sitting in the front row after that speech when the queer Christian musicians began to play worship music. The stranger next to me 
A woman with curly silver hair and compassionate eyes hugged me and whispered in my ear her hope that I'd be able to share this joy with my parents one day. I later learned about the profound work she does, curating extraordinary, intimate experiences of dialogue in a retreat setting among people who represent deep wounds to the others in the room. And the intriguing thing about the spaces she holds is that reconciliation is not the stated goal. Neither is agreement or persuasion. In fact, debate is prohibited. So when she invited me to be a participant in one of these retreats, it took me a couple of years to agree, especially since they are faith-based and Christianity wasn't part of my identity anymore. But in 2016, as I was getting divorced from the Republican Party, I finally did. And that time was transformative in ways I never expected. And I am deeply, deeply grateful for it. In fact, it was so powerful, I went on to train with her and learn how to hold space to facilitate the kind of dialogue I experienced as a participant. This episode is about how we deal with people we care about when they're on the opposite side of what feels like the most important fights of our lifetime. By the end of our conversation, I hope to leave you with some new tools to navigate your own relational landscape. So for now, put down your swords and shields Take a deep breath. They will be there when we're done. It's my pleasure to welcome to Politicology my silver-haired stranger turned lifelong friend, Kristen Kamarnicki, and her colleague, Darren Calhoun. Kristen is the director of Dialogue and Convening at Christians for Social Action and the creator of their Oriented to Love dialogues about sexual and gender diversity in the church. In that role, she gathers Christians of different sexual orientations, gender identities, and theological convictions in search of a unity that is deeper than agreement. Kristen, it's great to be with you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Ron. Darren Calhoun is an associate fellow at CSA and a justice advocate, worship leader, and artist based in Chicago. Currently, he leads worship at Urban Village Church and serves in multiple capacities at organizations like CSA, the Reformation Project, who hosted that conference I mentioned, and Q Christian Fellowship. Darren has been part of a grassroots effort to reduce recidivism, truancy, violence, and unemployment on Chicago's South and West Sides, and has led groups on anti-racism and racial reconciliation, and sings with a progressive Christian band called The Many. Darren, thank you so much for making the time for being here. Absolutely glad to be here. Since we are talking about dialogue today, I want to start by giving our listeners an understanding of what that means. When we're talking about dialogue, how is it different than having everyday conversations? Yes, I was thinking about that um, on the way here this morning, Ron. I generally think of dialogue as something that you prepare for, and that at least if it's just with one other person, that at least that person has also agreed to prepare themselves, to set time aside, to listen in a certain way, to listen open-heartedly, open-handedly. And um, but I also thought about the fact that if you practice this something, if you practice this regularly with someone who's important in your life, it actually can become a pattern so that you know you have a trusted dialogue partner. 
those better kinds of conversations, those dialogical conversations can happen on the couch or on the drive somewhere. So, but generally speaking, you do need to prepare for and have certain ground rules, certain uh, agreements and mutual understandings before you start. So can you give our listeners an understanding of the dialogue work you do with Christians for social action and how you've witnessed the impact this kind of dialogue can have? I know you and I have talked about how it would be amazing to be able to share publicly what happens in those rooms, uh, but you can't do that. And there's also, you know, even if you could... Uh, even if you could waive all of the confidentiality, right? Putting a camera in that room would change what happens in the room. You can't do it. So can you both sort of take our listeners inside one of those experiences, uh, give them a, a picture of what it's like, what happens, and what the impact is? So people apply to the dialogue, which allows us to curate a group for maximum diversity. So we have, we only work with 12 people at a time and half of those folks will be uh, queer identifying and half of those folks will be straight cisgender identifying. And um, in each of those subgroups, we'll have some people who are more progressive in their theology and some people who are more uh, conservative in their theology. And once the group has been chosen and commits to the commitments that I ask them to, which one of which is to keep confidentiality and to stay the course, right? Because any early departures really break trust, uh, uh, early departures or even late departures <laughs> or late arrivals, I should say. Um, and then I lead them through eight weeks of a uh, weekly assignment. Each assignment sort of builds on the last one. And they are all part of this process of moving towards our other, our gender other, our sexual other, our theological other, in mutual vulnerability. Mm. So these are exercises that are designed to help us practice, move towards this space that we are creating over this weekend that's eight weeks out. Um, we introduce ourselves to each other. We share why we're here. What skin do we have in the game? You know, what's at stake for us personally? We share, this part is done um, confidentially, but I want people to know the theological diversity that is in the room. So everybody is asked to share their baseline beliefs about sexuality, gender, and God. And those things are sort of shared as sets, but not we don't know who believes no what. No names attached. No to names us. attached at that point because we're still yeah. really building trust. Yeah. And then another step is stating their hopes for the dialogue. What do you hope will happen here? And what are you afraid might happen? Like what would be your worst fear? So that's another step in vulnerability. And then a very important part of this process is submitting questions for your quote-unquote other, theological other, sexual gender other. And that at that point, I and the individuals enter into sort of a coaching relationship because a lot of people do not know how to ask good, open-ended, compassionately curious, non-leading questions. Some people do it great, but many of us were never trained so we're really much more comfortable asking loaded questions, which put our respondent on the defensive or position ourselves, our position, right? So um, that is very, very important. And some people need back and forth many, many times before we come up with a set of questions that they feel good about and that I feel good about too. But it's so interesting because they discover along the process what's really at the heart of their question. And I just help them 
phrase it in a way that somebody actually wants to yeah. answer that question, that yeah. they feel invited to answer that question. So those are just a few of the, of the really important aspects. Can you give us an example of uh, maybe a, a loaded or pointed question that then converts to an opening question? Well, for example, in the area of sexuality, yeah. um, a, a leading question, and pretty loaded too, might look like, um, how did you deal with the shame and humiliation of coming out? Mm. Now, that's assuming that that person dealt with shame and humiliation. I mean, the fact is we're talking about coming out in the church, so it's very likely. Yeah. But when you assume, that can be dangerous. And also, I like to think of questions as a door that we open and invite people into to explore. They're exploring their own responses. But too often, our questions are like we set a bunch of boulders at the foot of their door, and then they have to push past them to get to where they are, right? So suppose shame and humiliation wasn't part of your coming out experience. We have many people who who grew up in a progressive church or didn't even grow up in the church and came to faith later. So if I just say instead, ask instead, what was your coming out experience like? What were the main emotions you felt? What were some of the obstacles, if any, that you had to uh, overcome? And what were some of the gifts? Just an open mm-hmm. question that the person can say, oh, what was a gift? What was an obstacle? What was that like for you? Then they don't have to climb over any boulders. They can just get immediate access to their experience and share it. It feels like an invitation. Yeah. Darren, what has your experience been like seeing some of the more pointed or loaded questions come in and then working with the participants to teach them about an opening question? What is involved in changing the posture? Part of it is sage advice that we often hear, which is assume good intentions. And while I think that's great advice to an extent, um, it can leave you open to to kind of giving people too much credit when it comes to, well, why did you come at me like that? Why did you say it that way? And so what an open-ended question does is really sets up this opportunity for you to let your genuine intention of being curious, of finding out, show through without doing this super loaded version of the question that's really showing all your assumptions. And so when it comes to helping people navigate that, um, it's it's so interesting to realize that some people will really keep coming up with other versions of loaded mm-hmm. questions. But when you when you step back and look at the patterns, just like oh, you're actually concerned about something like maybe a, a, a child or maybe you know an experience, and you're just so tied up trying to get to that thing, um, and usually trying to get to certainty that you leave it out. You know, you leave out all this good stuff that we're doing. So it becomes a process of helping people get comfortable and helping people slow down and helping people take a minute to to get to what they really want to know with the person in the room and not with the assumption that they're fight, fighting within their head. It's um, really important, I think, for people to understand that what happens in the room once everyone is together at these retreats would not be possible if it weren't for the all of the preparation work that you do with them the eight weeks preceding. And I think some of the things that, while our listeners aren't embarking on one of these retreats, I think the tools along the way that you teach people before they enter that room are incredibly useful in day-to-day conversations. 
So what else is involved in that preparatory period? And, and why did you do it that way? Part of what I think is so special about the way we engage uh, dialogue participants is that many of us, if we grew up in the U.S., if you grew up in a Western context, we're taught to hurry up and get to answers, hurry up and get to solutions, that the most effective thing that we can do is hurry up and fix it. And the fact that there's an application process and then the fact that there's six weeks of lead up and engagement and we ask people to do things like, tell us about yourself. And, and many people freeze up because they're used to either doing like the standard corporate bio that isn't very personal. We ask a first person narrative, at least at this point we do. And they're like, wait, 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 no, no, no. I, I, I don't have anything to say about me. And again, like there's this thing where people want to kind of rush past, well, don't worry about me. I just want to learn about you. And it sounds good on the surface. But what it is, is we, we're, we're not fully comfortable with ourselves. And so, again, out of that angst, out of that anxiety, um, all of these processes ask people to really slow down and figure out what it is you're showing up to. Because you may be coming because you just want to get an answer. You want to know what the Bible says about X, Y, Z. Or you want to know why uh, people who believe a certain thing are so horrible, right? You know, these closed-ended assumptions. Um, but instead the slowing down, this intentional, deliberate, slow process, this intentional relational process helps people to really reframe what they're walking into. So that by the time they get there, we rarely see the, you know, the, 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 the stereotypical Thanksgiving dinner blowups. Mm. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have deep, heavy, hard, tearful, even conversations, but it means that the ways that people are showing up isn't that rushed, hurried, let's hurry up and get to the point. Instead, it really in, invites people and it teaches people another way to sit with, a, sit with a, an issue or a discussion or even a challenge. Um, and then to know that other people have done the same deep, invested, long-term process. It, just, it gives people a different basis so that really by the first night, people are already getting deep and talking about some heavy personal stuff. That shared commitment that you've demonstrated to each other over the course of the eight weeks leading up to really serves as shared ground when you enter the space together, right? You've, you have this, yeah. you have, you have a shared, you have a shared history, even though it's brief, right? Yeah. There's a, a, a kind of sweat equity. <laughs> we talked about this uh, a few days ago, uh, before we recorded, and uh, Kristen, you talked about how the work you do is grounded in shared faith, explicitly shared belief in Christianity of all different theological flavors, right? What can that grounding connection point be for people who aren't people of faith or who have family relationships or friendships across different faith backgrounds? Yeah, that's a good question because I do think it's super important for the work that we do. Um, but I'll have to, I have to say that having worked with very, very diverse groups of Christians, it can feel very much like an 
interfaith conversation mm. because there are so many flavors. I mean, everybody who comes say they want to put Christ at the center of their lives, but it looks very, very different on the ground for, for these people. So I think that um, a commitment to the conversation, first of all, like I think this is important enough for us to walk towards a weekend of discomfort oh, for it. Okay. Uh, or I think that um, this community is important enough. Or I think that my family is important. I'm in love, right? There are many things that connect us. And there are many, many relationships that we already have out there that are across deep difference. Um, they're just certain topics that tend to <laughs> be like tinderbox ones, right? Um, we live with difference all the time with those that we that we love, and we find a way. So, when you're going to engage in intentional dialogue, how do you prepare both yourself, but also how do you prepare space? Um, how do you prepare mentally and emotionally, and how do you prepare? participants um, and, and prime them for that dialogue. We talked a little bit about the, you know, the eight-week period, but then you also have to be prepared to hold the space that they're about to enter. Can you talk about that? Sure. And I would like to mention one more thing about yeah. the preparation yeah. process, and that's that I really spend a lot of time normalizing the fear that people are feeling, mm. the agitation, uh, the judgmental ism that they're feeling, right? Yeah. So one of our exercises is to look through the list of uh, bios and intros and photos and also look through the hopes and fears and look for the person that ups your anxiety level in some way. Somebody mm -hmm. who just rubs you the wrong way. You don't have to even understand it, but you know it. You feel it in your body. And then that is the person that you're going to focus on. Now, in our setting, it's through prayer, right? But it's another way of just saying, hmm, I wonder what it's like to be this person. But I'm, I'm front-loading that. Like, yes, we are going to feel judgmental. We are going to be irritated with each other. We are going to feel, oh, if only this person would X, Y, Z, then my life would be better. Yeah. I remember uh, that person from my dialogue. Yeah. And that's just a very powerful upfront exercise that prepares people to, um, to come. And then you know that somebody in the room has probably chosen you. You are an irritant to somebody yeah. else in the room, yeah. likely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, and then combined with, in terms of holding the space, creating yeah. the space, just, um, I mean, I think of it in terms of radical hospitality. How can I show these people that they're not only needed, they are really desired. Mm. I really want them to be there. And without one, with one of them missing, the group just will not happen the way it can. And a lot of people, it's very common a week or two before people say, oh, you know what? I can't make it after all. You know, uh, I got to start my taxes uh, or I just realized this happened. I can't make it. And I just, I have never lost anybody. <laughs> I remind them that of the commitments they made and it's going to be okay. And we're going to do this together. And yes, it's going to be hard, but um, it allows them to feel seen and um, understood. Yeah. And so they're more likely to to creep for it, yeah. uh, toward, towards it, even with great trepidation. I would love to hear about because I, I can I can imagine listeners right now thinking, um, well, that's that's all nice, but these are very serious issues. And how do you how do you create a setting where people are willing to not talk about? the disagreement, not, not try to achieve something, not try to settle the score or arrive at, uh, agreement. How do you, 
not sidestep that, but go straight through it? How do you how do you deal with that desire? I think the process helps to to do that at the front end, right? People actually get to name a question that they want to ask and a question that they want to be asked. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it helps put you in the mindset that yes, there's an exchange here, but there's also the parts of what we do where there's intentional time of getting to see your commonalities with others who are in the room. And so I think I think when we're, for example, on the internet and in a chat comment section or when we are having a conversation with a stranger on an airplane, like we don't get all this context, we don't get all these connecting points. And so we're, we feel rushed to hurry up and say the thing, get the point out, make the conversion. But we all know we're going to be here for two and a half days or so. We, we already know that, that there's been all this lead up where you've gotten to read a little bit of their background. You've gotten to read some of the questions that you know someone is going to share that weekend. And so in, in very like tacit ways, you, you know your question is going to get addressed. And what I, what I think I'm observing from people who attend or who participate is that they didn't anticipate how many other questions they didn't know they had yet, right? Like people usually come with the one big question or the thing they feel like, if I could just figure this one thing out, it's all going to resolve. And instead, they find out, they find friendship and connection that they never thought that they could have, where again, they're not being, they're, they don't feel like they have to, to prove themselves or to give up something from themselves. But instead they find, oh, wow, this this is a whole person, a whole human that I like and share things in common. We're, we're both pastors or we're, we both have uh, have small kids and it was really hard to be away this weekend. They find commonalities that, again, are the way that we do life these days, we stay disconnected from people. And so it's easy to just kind of form opinions around vague ideas that you have of who people are. But in this space where we're going to eat dinner together and we're going to wake up and do breakfast again the next day and where there's just kind of that natural accountability of these are whole humans that don't go away when you close the the chat window. Um, It just changes, I think, the ways that people sit down for for long, more difficult conversations. They know they'll get a chance to have their say. And so it's all of a sudden it's not such a, a press or rush to get to that. How do you set expectations? for what the end results might be for a dialogue? I think just being very honest. I mean, we just say this isn't about a debate. Don't expect any aha moments like, oh, now I understand everything. Expect to leave with more questions than you came in with, as Darren just referred to. I think when you invite people to come together, not in spite of their differences, but because of their differences, then they know what they're walking towards. I get a lot of people say to me, oh, I hear you do conflict resolution. And I say, oh, no, no, no. I do conflict embrace. (laughs) Yes. Because many, many of the conflicts in our lives, not just political, interpersonal, many, anybody who's in a long-term relationship with a partner uh, knows that there are many conflicts that don't resolve. We learn to live with them in fruitful ways. That's possible. If we're lucky, we learn to live with them Mm -hmm. in fruitful ways. Um, And that's just uh, how it's framed. So I I have to say that the people who walk towards the dialogue, or just even your listeners, people who decide they want to walk towards true dialogue, are already a pretty special, brave, self-selecting group. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. Not everybody is capable of, not, certainly not everybody is willing to, right. to do true dialogue. Right. It took so. me two years to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sure this is something uh, on a lot of people's minds listening to this, right? They, the, there is so much conflict. Our lives are filled with conflict, especially if you pay attention to politics. So I just, I think it's important. Um, thank you for unpacking that for us, but specifically for people who are listening to this and saying, you know, well, that conversation might lead to conflict, so I should avoid it, right? That's become our default sort of mode. Um, how would you encourage um, people to move toward conflict or move toward things that make them uncomfortable? And why? Well, I really don't like conflict. I don't enjoy the feeling that it brings up in me at all. And uh, people seem... You picked a great place to be working if if you don't enjoy conflict. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it does. It's surprising, right? People think, oh, how can you do that work? But actually, I hate the discomfort that I feel. And there's another kind of discomfort that is fruitful that I've discovered that is less uncomfortable than the discomfort of staying out of it. Uh, People seem to, a lot of people think that if I just avoid this, it'll go away. But avoiding thing doesn't make it go away and it doesn't make it not true. So um, when you avoid things, they just fester, right? I mean, look how many relationships die because we just drift apart. We we agree to disagree and that means we're not going to talk about it anymore. And because we're both passionate about that thing, we're leaving out the biggest part or one of the biggest parts of ourselves. We're, we're putting on the side things that are integral to who we are. And so we miss out on the intimacy that comes from being real and sharing that, even when it's difficult. Yeah. Can either of you, um, now we've talked about how the the expectations are essential, setting expectations are essential to not expect uh, the outcomes that you might otherwise expect from a debate or an argument, or especially whenever you're discussing issues like this. Can you share, uh, even anonymously, um, some of the fruit from these experiences, what does tend to happen? Because I think it's probably counterintuitive for a lot of people um, that really interesting, healthy stuff can come about as a result of maybe long down the road after one of these experiences. But in general, what have you seen that makes you keep doing this? I've seen friendships flourish and develop and last over many years between people who would not have met probably and certainly wouldn't have gotten a chance to know each other. And those friendships change people. Um, Sometimes it's as simple as someone saying, I will never tell another gay joke again. Because if I say gay, I have this person in my mind and I love this person now. So what was a sort of disembodied concept or those people over there are now, you know, my friend Joey or whatever. So that's a really powerful thing. It seems really small, but it is really powerful. And those friendships just go on to, um, and it doesn't necessarily mean they change their stance theologically in this case, but it does mean that their hearts change towards the other person. And that's really what we're after. Yeah, that's that's the part that I think is so easy to overlook or maybe is the reason why people avoid the conversations in the first place, right? That, that there's an assumption that you have to change your theology or you have to change your, your maybe things that you've done to protect yourself um, from harm. 
people assume that to come together, you have to agree. It's like, no, we can, we can practice being respectful. We can practice being authentic because sometimes people think respectful means not being authentic about your experience or your harms or your, or your core beliefs or your values. Um, but instead there's this way of, of seeing how, um, you know, even as, even as Christians, there's so much diversity of thought. That's why we have so many different denominations and churches and so forth, but we still can come together as Christians. And in the same way, even as Americans or even as humans on the planet, like there's all kinds of different ways that we exist and we can still do it together. Um, but yeah, you have to, you have to create that space where you go, oh, there's something that I want to do with you that is not prove myself or prove my own values to you. Um, yeah, it, it changes a lot. I want to tease something apart now. Um, we regularly get questions from listeners, as I mentioned, you know, how do I talk to people, especially around like very heated political topics. We regularly talk about what we're seeing right now as a fight for the future of our country and democracy as an institution. And I laid some of that out in the intro. And um, I'd like for you both to help us think about roles in these conversations, because um, sometimes I, I imagine people thinking, well, does that mean I have to choose between always being in this mode? Or what about my advocacy for things that I feel very strongly about? Um, whether in, you know, back in 2014, whether you're advocating for LGBT inclusion in evangelical right places, or you're advocating for, um, voting rights or democracy, you're, you're campaigning against authoritarianism. How do you balance a sort of mission to change the world with the need to, for example, ask opening questions and reaching across divide to your other, whether that's your theological other, your political other. Um, how should we think about these the, the tension involved in that? What I've what I've always done is is been seen and known in places that vehemently disagree with each other, and people who are exclusive to one of you know two opposing spaces would say, well, how can, how can you be there? How can you be, be with those kind of people or those kind of ideas? Maybe you don't really, you know, believe what we believe, you know, when contrasting one side with the other. And what I've always felt most comfortable in is constructive tension. I've felt most comfortable in the idea that, yes, these two opposing spaces may exist, but it is the strength of having them having both, having options, having choices, having, um, having a range, not even just a, a binary of, of options, but having different ways that people can show up that, one, we become clearer about what it is that we believe and what is important to us. And then two, that we can, we can more uh, effectively, more inclusively, more responsibly build toward the future that we say we believe. Because um, if we're, for example, if we're saying, oh, well, we believe that God loves everyone, and I have an understanding about what that means, but it seems to be different than yours, we can both keep working under the idea that God loves everyone, but I might need to learn a little bit more about how you understand God's love. I might need to learn a little bit more about how you feel 
grace or how you feel connected to God so that I can have an informed conversation with you so that I can, so that we don't have to, to be fighting against the, the assumption that somehow we both don't believe God loves us. Like, no, like, okay, we agree with that. Now, now where do we go so that you have the freedom and I have the freedom, you know, we can, we can have a party of differing ideals. So a less complicated way of maybe saying that is I run, t- when you, when you talk about conflict, I say, I run toward the fight, but I don't, I'm not a fighter. I don't have hands is the, as another way of saying that I am somebody who runs toward the tension and toward the conflict, because I believe that we can build stronger things out of it. Just like a bridge is strong, not because it's rigid, it's because it's flexible. And so if I really believe that us being able to exist in spaces where people don't all agree with us, if I believe that we're able to make room for in places for conversations, that yes, I really am changing the world. The world gets better as a result of us having conversations like this um, and that it, it is connected. It's not opposite. It's not separate. Like this is how we get better. So we can, we can do what we do. We can advocate. We can, we can fight. We can, we can shout loud and strong. And it does not mean that it has to be to the exclusion of others. But it literally is an opportunity for us to be clearer about what we believe and live into it more fully than if it was only a, an idea stuck in our heads. Mm. That is so well said. Also, even just from a purely um, uh, practical level, if, you, if your underlying hope is, I mean, I think most of us hope that other people will sort of see the light. Of course. Right? Um, because we, we hold to our convictions because they feel like the right thing. Otherwise, we wouldn't hold. Because we're convicted. Yes, because we're <laughs> convicted. We wouldn't hold so tightly to them. But um, we all know from personal experience, we've never changed our minds or warmed even to any other possibility because someone wagged their finger in our face or called us an idiot, right? So if we just can extend that same kind of respect, well, the opposite of that, which is respect towards other people, the assumption that you must have good reasons for believing what you believe— I think that I have good reasons. Now, in true dialogue, I may discover that my reasons aren't as good as I thought they were because they'll be challenged in healthy ways. And maybe you'll discover the same thing too, but I can't control that. But what does it look like to say, in fact, I thought of this earlier when you were talking about the bad question versus the better question. I think it's so typical, especially in political conversations, to say, how could you possibly (laughs) vote for? How could you possibly believe that, right? And that's technically a question. There's a question mark at the end of it. Absolutely. But what if we said instead, help me understand how you came to this conclusion? Mm -hmm. I really want to understand. If we can cultivate, I think if there's one thing we could do to change the, the tenor of our conversations in general, whether on the broad uh, public level or at home and with our families is to cultivate true curiosity. Yeah. If we really want to know instead of, and I think I learned this from Celeste Headley, actually, mm-hmm. one of your guests. Yeah. Um, if we listen to learn mm-hmm. and we're in the posture of learner instead of I'm listening so that I can craft my response because I'm going to have a getcha thing here. Mm-hmm. It's just a totally different state of the heart. and But it's a state of the heart that requires um, vulnerability saying, I don't have all the answers, yeah. and and being truly curious about this person, yeah. seeing them as an object of fascination, yeah. or even just an education. Yeah. It's, uh, it's actually something that informs really effective marketing. <laughs> 
imagine that. And they, uh, understanding the audience that you're trying to persuade in the first place, the, understand, the understanding part is often overlooked and minimized. Um, I could, I could yeah. add a practical note to that. You know, yeah. when we talk about understanding off the audience for the sake of persuasion, or not even necessarily for the sake, but because we know that understanding increases the ability to persuade, right? Um, there's a there's a just a very practical political strategy of knowing that some people are convinced, a lot more people are uncertain and silent, and then there's wherever you are, right? And if if you're trying to reach the convinced folks, going directly at them, probably they, they have barriers and walls built up toward people like you. Because you're both convinced. But what's more effective is to find the people that do have questions. Um, because there's some camps where to be in the camp, you have to not have questions. You have to only have answers. And when that is the case, you as somebody who has a different set of ideas or values is not going to be the one who, who creates change. The people who also have questions are the change makers and the, and the ones who are able to speak to the convinced in language that they understand, in, in relatable stories that they, that they shared and experienced, and, and the trust that is imputed to those who are somewhere in that, somewhere closer to them. Those are the ones yeah. who do make change. So that so yeah. there's a strategy that happens when we get yeah. to be the people who are better with the questions because we yeah. are the change makers. We are the ones who are able to influence, um, again, not, not towards certainty per se, but we are able to influence in ways that are constructive, in ways that build something different than what, was, than what has existed um, at either, either end of the spectrum of certainty. You know, because of how big and important some of these things can feel, uh, the fight can feel. It, it seems like there's a constant pressure to convince people uh, to join whatever side you're on in the fight. Uh, we feel this pressure to convince people that democracy is under threat. Some people feel a pressure to convince others the election was stolen. When we want to have real dialogue with people we care about, which I would emphasize for the purposes of this conversation, what we're talking about, that those are the people who I'm thinking of. You know, we're not going to be able to do this on a massive scale. We're not going to be able to, sometimes, frankly, to win a political fight, you got to fight. I mean, you got to fight with a knife. And, um, and, and, but we're not talking about that fight right now. We're talking about how to protect the relationships that you care about while that fight is actually happening. That's the way I'm seeing this. I think it's important to be clear about our goals um, in, in that context. So when you want to have real dialogue with people you care about and you don't agree on the really consequential things, how would you encourage people to identify their goals in those conversations? And Kristen, you've mentioned um, you, know, you, don't, you don't like the, the phrase agree to disagree. So can you share why, and then maybe we can talk about, you know, even for someone individually to mentally prepare themselves or to contextualize conversations with their, with their loved ones, how should they be thinking about outcomes in those conversations? I think it's helpful to remember when we're talking about our loved ones, whether they're related or just friends, is that our true goal, deep down underneath all the tension and, that we feel, is connection. 
We love them. We had a connection. We want that connection to continue. Something's threatening it. But we, so we want to regain that feeling. And we want that trust. We want to be able to be ourselves in the presence of that other person without every, everything erupting, right? I think that's really helpful to remember that that, that that's at the core. Um, but I think a lot of do people do sort of come to the, okay, well, we've come to this this blockade here. We can't go any further. You're saying your thing. I'm saying my thing. There's no there's no connection here. So let's just agree to disagree. But that does feel like a, a closed door and it, it feels uh, like a cold front, right? Um, so I was thinking that, or I, I find, I wish I wish I practiced this more in my personal <laughs> life so that I didn't sit here this feeling like- This is hard like, stuff, This folks. is hard stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Please be gentle with yourself. And honestly, there's just so much interior work you have to do before you even can start feeling like you're ready for dialogue. But why not, instead of just saying, okay, let's agree to disagree and moving apart, why not say, you've given me a lot to think about? That's true. You've given me a lot to think about. I like to take some time to consider what you've told me, and I'm going to see if I have some other follow-up questions for you. It is okay to take a break. It's mm-hmm. okay to talk about your kid's baseball team for that a minute, part. right? You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then come back to it. But honestly, I think just being um, vulnerable and saying our relationship is so important to me that I really would. But but what you think and believe about this thing is also important to me. I really do want to understand it. So could we make a date a week from now or a month from now? And then you do. You keep your word. You check in on that person. And they might not be willing. You cannot control your dialogue partner. But if they say, oh, wait, you, I've given you a lot to consider. Oh, you want to revisit this? You want to walk towards this again? I think most people are so intrigued by that. And if you, as the sort of driving force for the dialogue, if you're more invested than they are, you have a lot of power in just keeping that conversation open simply by expressing interest, telling them how much it's meant to you that they shared so openly, looking for something to affirm in what they believe. Even if you find it awful, there's always something to affirm, even if it's just they're passionate about this. Yes, you really care. So those are some, some thoughts. And there's a there's an opportunity as well, and I've seen this not in our oriented to love dialogues, but in in other spaces like on Facebook. I I'm known for having very deep conversations on Facebook, and again, you see where people show up with the assumptions. It's like, well, why why are you limiting my First Amendment rights to free speech? And it's like, mm, I'm not going to answer that question. Instead, <laughs> I'm going to remind you that in the spaces that I hold, the spaces I curate, like my profile or my comment section, everybody can comment. But we're, we're, we don't do drive-bys here. We, we don't come and say things and then not expect to be in, in continuing conversation with the people who are here and sharing their hearts and sharing their thoughts. None of that's about you agreeing. None of that's about you having to change your mind. But the power of, of being willing to just stay present, again, with breaks and with the self-care that you need or with the, the time to go back and reflect, all that being true, just being willing to stay and show up and keep showing up um, is powerful. It does have to be something you can afford to do. If you're not safe, you can't afford to do that. If you're not, if you're not um, doing your own care of yourself and your own mental health, then you can't afford to do that. But if you are in the place where your life and your basic needs are taken care of and you just keep showing up, 
it has profound effects mm-hmm. on what people are willing to to do, think about, or even take action on. It was the years I spent as a gay man um, in non-affirming churches that were not at all thinking about changing their theology, but where they had policies that affected people like me. Mm. And I would reasonably see people leave when those policies harmed them. But I stayed because I could afford to do so. And I showed up and it was the fact that they kept having to apply, apply policies to me that they felt like, this isn't right. Like, mm. we know who you are and we know what you do and we know how you serve and how you give and how you lead. But it was the fact that they could still apply something to someone who was present that caused them to consider, again, not their theology, but just to consider how they were handling the people that they that were showing up and willing to serve in their churches. Um, so it's a thing to just to, to take a self a self assessment of, like Kristen said, if you if you are in a place where you can do personal work, then now might not be the time. And out of respect, it might be good to take some time away. But that isn't time away so that you never have to think about it again. It's time away so that you can come back at a time where you do have more grace or more room or more space or more energy or you know more food in your stomach so you're not hangry. <laughs> like there's a way that you can show up um, and it may not be in this moment, but um, figure out the figure out the unique thing that you can do, the unique place that you can show up because we I, I say we all have a role in, in making the world a better place. Um, and that's not going to look the same for everyone. So it's not always being the, the lobbyist. It's not always being the one who's at the front of the protest. It's not always being the person who's running for office. It might be the one who's at the family gathering who doesn't have to leave. But when the, when the, when the things blow up, the people who can stick around and pick up the pieces and not pretend like nothing's wrong, <laughs> mm-hmm. but to actually say, okay, so we're still here. What do we do now? Let's figure this out. Now? What do we do now? That compassionate curiosity that I talked about having for the other, I think we should need to start by having it for ourselves. Um, it's so easy to say, wow, he's so angry or he's so bigoted or whatever, whatever. But how aware are we of what we're bringing to the table? So if we can have that same kind of compassionate curiosity and say, wow, I think it's Parker Palmer who said, when in doubt, turn to wonder. I think mm. that's the right attribution. I love that phrase. And I sort of change it for myself to um, when triggered, turn to wonder. So when I'm feeling outraged or super sad, whatever, I just say, now, Kristen, where is that coming from? Or because sometimes it just hits you out of the blue, yeah. right? And yeah. especially in families, right? Oh, because yeah. you, their families have family rules, unspoken rules, and you have patterns, right? So sometimes you see something and you can say, wow. I'm feeling something, and that's the way I felt when I was seven, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or your and a boss. facial expression can set it off. Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah. And, and it can happen outside, too. Like, your boss says something to you, and you think, ooh, why, do I, why am I feeling that way? Oh, well, that's because that's the way my dad used to talk to my mom, and it's triggering something, right? So if we can get compassionately curious about our own self selves, then we know what we're bringing to the table, and that goes a huge way. And that's what allows Darren, because of the work that he's done, that's what allowed him to stay in that church. He could handle that. He was centered. He was grounded enough to be able to absorb some of that. And that is what makes you more effective in the long run at any level, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's also something, you mentioned Celeste Headley, 
we can link to that episode in the show notes here because it's highly relevant. Um, she also mentioned in that conversation, it, remembering that it's okay to tap out. It's If you know you don't have the energy, maybe you don't have time for the conversation in the first place. It's okay to monitor your own energy levels, your own, like, do, do, am I capable right now of, of the kind of effort it takes to have this very difficult dialogue? If the answer is no, then don't do it. Don't even start, right? It's okay to, to protect that space. Another big important piece is remembering that two things can be true at one time. Yeah. And so sometimes we think, but that person said something wrong. And so it's completely justified and it's completely appropriate for me to be angered. And that can be true while also you can be holding another bit of thing that has nothing to do with that person or what they said. But it is that thing that happened to you when it made you feel embarrassed or alone or scared. And approaching this true thing that is wrong with the angst and the rage or the fear or the anxiety of the other thing that happened to you isn't fully authentic to the moment. And to just be able to, to see both and go, yes, that's wrong. And I've got some other stuff that I've, I'm dealing with. And being able to just know that and observe it and then make wiser or healthier choices. Because, yeah, I can go fight fight the, the, the places that have harmed me. Um, and I can, I can fight for justice for and to create a future that is, that is informed by, yes, I was harmed by these kinds of places. But I want to create a future with people who weren't a part of those places and people who can't take responsibility for, for what harmed me. I want to create a future with them, not against them. Um, and so I have to know, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really hurt because I was hurt by authoritative men. And I can't go at, go at you because you seem like an authoritative man, even if you're in authority. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it's, I'm not going to be the one to go after you because I'm still really ready to fight authoritative men. You know, it, you yeah. know it's just knowing yeah. and being yeah. honest with yourself. And it's okay. Like you said, it is, it is all right to know which, which, uh, which battles you can fight. And I'm, I'm also trying to lean into nonviolent language. So I'm going to say which, uh, which tables you can serve or something. <laughs> I have one other sort of big topic I'd like to explore with you both, which is grace, for lack of a better word. Uh, but I think this that the phenomenon that I'm describing is uh, universal and goes by lots of different terms. Um, but how should we be thinking about the importance of, we'll say grace, uh, assuming goodwill, um, when we have these difficult conversations and I, and especially, especially when someone changes their views, when they do have a change of posture. And I, and I'm thinking in the, let's use Matt Damon as an example of this, uh, when he, a couple of years ago, but perfect example, this has happened many times since then, and the social phenomenon is troubling. He said he wasn't going to use gay slurs anymore after a conversation with uh, with a child who 
helped him understand the hurt that it caused. And he got just skewered alive on social media, regular media, all over the place, suddenly for changing his uh, posture toward the language that he uses about gay people. Suddenly, he's now a villain uh, forever having done it in the first place. And I would love to hear what you both think about that pile-on effect when someone's actually moving in, a, in, in the direction you want them to move. How do you how do you deal with that and how should people, how should our listeners think about that when it happens? When, for example, someone who has uh, worked for some of the most abhorrent uh, political people that you can think of and then has a change of heart, has a change of mind, and um, and what do you do with with that? Yeah, you were talking. I mean, you were describing the opposite of grace, right? right? What yeah, happened to Matt exactly. Damon? That really upsets me because um, it 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 penalizes vulnerability. I mean, he just opened up. I don't think he was planning on telling that story. I don't know. I didn't actually listen to the original interview. I just read about it. But um, if people are penalized for saying how they've grown or changed, or they're they're penalized for the timeline that they were on, um, then then it discourages. <laughs> future vulnerability, and then everybody loses, really. The whole culture, the individuals, we, we, we lose out. So that is a tragedy. Um, and I think sometimes it comes from our own fear of, to, we're afraid to examine our own selves, and we're not very compassionate over about ourselves. Like, if, I can easily look back at the person I was 10, 15 years ago and think, what an idiot. Mm, I can't believe same. I said, <laughs> believed X, Y, Z. Yeah. But that's part of my story. And what does it mean that that was part of my story? And how does that inform who I am today? And sort of embracing that and just saying, yeah, I did that. I believed that. But these things happened and this sharpened my, or this exposed me to a new way of thinking. And I'm really looking forward to meeting the person I'm going to be 10 or 15 years from now, who will look back and be a little cringed yeah. and you know, <laughs> a little embarrassed about who I am today. You just, that's a natural part of the process. So it's really damaging. Um, Darren? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little messy. So okay. be messy. Ron, I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. push on the on the question a little bit. And okay. it's and I'm acknowledging that this this these are your words, but it's not necessarily your issue. Using the word pylon mm -hmm. is loaded with the ways that we've come to understand multiple people responding to something that was done. And while it may not, it may be experienced as everyone's ganging up on me, it also could be people having this large communal conversation about something that you did. And what I've experienced many times, again, in Facebook groups or in, in discussions, is that um, there's a cultural difference. Um, where if you come from a more individualistic culture, then you tend to want one-on-one -on -one conversations about a thing that you did. And if more than one person is having a conversation with you about it, it feels overwhelming and scary and like a personal attack. Um, but if you come from more communal cultures, then everyone having a conversation about what you did isn't everyone jumping on you. And sometimes in unhealthy ways, it could be. Let's, you know, just acknowledge that. But there's, but there's also this thing where 
um, where people talk about things together. And again, it's not that they always do it well, but it's also not the same as, oh, such and such did something wrong. Let's all go get them, which is how it sometimes feels. So what I'm attempting to do is nuance that there are ways that people get responded to collectively that aren't an attack. It's kind of the consequence of saying things loudly in a room full of people, and then everyone responds to what you said because you had a platform and the ability to say it in a very loud way. Um, but again, like the, the, the ways that our society has kind of taught us to villainize certain expressions and certain cultural practices and so forth means that they say, oh, well, this is piling on. And it's just like, mm, maybe we're, maybe we're okay. having a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, point taken, particularly about that term. Um, but I would like to hear your thoughts on the chilling of vulnerability when someone is moving in the right direction. That's, that's, the, that's the part I'm, I'm, yes. I'm concerned about. And that, that, that is the beautiful, important, critical part of what it means to grow and change in a collective or a plural society. Um, because, again, I think, I think we want an individual to sit down with us and to give us a lesson in how to be better and to do it at our pace, at our comfort, and in ways that don't at all upset or offend us. And that is how so many valid conversations have gotten shut down. Because you didn't say it right to me, or you didn't use you didn't use it. You said something that made me upset or said made me uncomfortable. Um, the 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 challenge is is that we will see a public figure who we can identify with. Who again in the in this society in, in a Western context that we tend to identify with white men very very well. We understand them. We, we've been taught through movies and media to have lots of empathy and to see ourselves in their position. And so um, as individuals, we see ourselves, I couldn't imagine if a million people were on Twitter talking about something I said, but you're not a million people. You're not in a position to have a million people on Twitter talking about anything you said. Instead, you're a single person who just has the experience of maybe five or six people in the room talking about what you said. And those dynamics are very, very, the ratios are way off. And so what happens is because we've learned to see ourselves in a Matt Damon, we go, oh, that must be horrible. I would absolutely freak out. I would be this, I would be that. And so we use that to justify us shutting down. And we take burdens that aren't ours because we aren't celebrities. And we take that and, and somehow pack that into our everyday experience. And so instead of it being a million people on Twitter, it's the one person who was standing in line behind you at the, at the checkout who said something. If, and when someone else agreed with it, it felt like it's just like that Matt Damon thing. And so what I'm doing is illustrating how we can enter into another's experience and really understand, oh, I would feel upset. But also, that experience isn't mine. I don't live every time I open my mouth having six to seven newspapers report what I say. And all of them did it wrong. That's a, that's, a, that's a life that's not mine. So I can't assume that that experience should be the validation for why I shouldn't speak up or, why, or for why I shouldn't have compassion. Or it shouldn't, I shouldn't assume that because that person had a negative response that it's good or okay or wise for me to, to, to clam up and to shut down. It's hard. 
it is hard out here, but but we are walking our own roles. We're walking in our own lives. And so I want I understand that there's a very valid logical reason why people would be afraid of change, be afraid of making a mistake. Um, again, I would I would critique the society we grow up in that teaches us yeah. that mistakes are inherently bad. A hundred percent. Mistakes have consequences, but we can learn and grow from the consequence. And it doesn't have to be held as, oh, we'll never see the light of day again. No, nope. yeah. we can learn and the, grow. Where, where's the growth <laughs> without mistakes? Yeah. Yeah. And a mistake doesn't make you bad. <laughs> nope. Doesn't make you morally good or bad. Yeah. Is there anything we haven't touched on before we wrap up? I want to make sure I leave enough space to get at anything you guys feel is important. Well, we didn't really answer your grace question. Do you want to answer it? The one, yes. The, the, the one thing I will say <laughs> about grace is that um, it's beautiful when you witness it. Um, you're not always able to offer grace. And one thing I say at the dialogues is if you can't, uh, it's okay to express that you're struggling with that. And then the, the community can hold you in that space of tension because grace can't be manufactured or rushed. It has to come of its own or it's not grace, right? So um, I think, you know, always, Darren's always so good at pulling me back to the community experience. And it's very important that we do these things together. Um, but I would say the grace that I witness in the groups is most, the most powerful examples of that grace is when people confess to each other. Like, I thought that you were this and you're not. Or, I still think your ideas are wrong, but I also I also love you. Uh, so that is actually a grace for oneself, right? To allow that, like I was wrong, or wow, I'm finding this ability to love you across deep difference because we dared to dine together, get to know each other. Like Darren was saying, you know, we have we do have these things in common. We are we and we've both judged each other. So those I love those those moments of. Uh, Real connection, and that is what unity looks like that's deeper than agreement, right? That's our tagline for Oriented to Love. And it doesn't mean, a lot of people I think are frustrated, like, I thought we were going to get unity, you know? Mm -hmm. But I'm like, wait, deeper than agreement. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and usually when people process it afterwards, they see, oh, yes, I did. I felt so connected to that person, or we, 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 we sang together, or we looked at this beautiful vista together, and I did feel connected to you. That those are other kinds of unity that are actually more beautiful and more profound than agreement. And that's grace. Yeah. And handling all these sensitive and personal topics and us creating the tension that is even this conversation. I'm sure that many people have felt their bodies tense up at times, felt like they wanted to talk back to the podcast at times. And all of that is real. All of that is good. And I think it's an opportunity for us to just be thankful, like, right? Like our bodies are speaking to us. Our minds are speaking to us. God, if you believe in God or a higher power, has designed us with the capacity to feel these words and to respond. Um, and so even if it's not going the way you think it should go or people aren't saying what you think they should say, you care. And if you didn't care, you wouldn't be listening this far into the podcast. And so, like, to, to remind ourselves that we 
do deserve the grace and the care and the time that it takes to see change happen, to to deal with the wrongs that we see in the world, to protect and to to do things to make sure we have a future and something to hope for and and all that. Like all of it matters. That's that's why we fight. That's why we disagree. It, it does matter to us and it matters to other people. And while we don't handle each other well, most of the time, I'd say, <laughs> we, we can get better and it is getting better. And so, yeah, sometimes we look at the, at the past with a certain nostalgia or sometimes we look at the past with utter fear. But um, like Dr. Martin Luther King said, you know, the, the, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Like something good is coming and it's not just a blind optimism or a, a illogical hope. I've seen the change that I've made in the world. And I'm sure that everyone here has been a part of some kind of change that they felt like the world was a better place because of it. And so rather than assuming we have to finish the whole, the whole marathon in, in, in a sprint, let's just s- slow our pace, appreciate the distance that we've traveled, and continue to, to learn and figure out how do we make this world better. Um, I, it's, it's working. It's hard, but it's working. It is working. Here, here. So how can people support your work? Where can they find you? Um, you want to share a little bit about how, how many times you do this a year and, um, and how it's funded? Listeners can go to christiansforsocialaction.org. That's the organization that I work for. It's a nonprofit. The program is Oriented to Love. And we do about four uh, in-person dialogues a year, confidential weekends, like we were describing. We also do public fishbowl dialogue demonstrations where people can come and see what it looks like. And that's, we use our alum community to to uh, demonstrate that, which is really cool. And uh, we- webinars and uh, lots of other things. So please check us out and um, see if it touches your heart. Kristen. And Darren, thank you so much for being here. This was this was uh, really really special for me. Thank you. I hope uh, for our listeners that you can uh, come to see that unity is connection, but it doesn't have to be sameness, and that you uh, can take some tools practically away from this conversation that help. Stay curious. Stay curious. It's my and favorite have fun. place to be. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great adventure out there. It is. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>